Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012. It's now the 23rd day of February 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from Sully Baseball Studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager, Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. You know, it's funny that, I mean, maybe it's a sign of me getting older, and I am. I'm actually not getting younger. But it could be a sign that, that there's just some things that used to be a huge part of my life. Just, I mean, I, I maybe sometimes, I mean, am I letting go of certain things? Am I moving on? I don't know. Uh, I'm obviously still a a rabid baseball fan. The fact that I'm doing this podcast as often as I am should be a testament to that. Uh, but I find myself getting more and more uh, lenient and, and a little more open-minded about things like winning World Series and things like that since my team has won and I've gotten older. I'm kind of like thinking more on the lines of, oh, I'd love to see some of these other teams win. You know, I brought up the idea of, you know, the Indians and the Nationals and the Astros and the Pirates and the Dodgers and the A's and some teams that have had recent success but without winning have been something that's been on my mind. Like, yeah, you know, I almost, look, I'm going to root for a Red Sox championship. Of course I am. But, I mean, there's some part of me is almost more excited about the idea of a Cleveland and Indians championship to see something I haven't seen. Now, when it comes down to Red Sox, Indians of the postseason, yeah, then we'll see how that turns out. But the Academy Awards used to be something, too, for me. The Academy Awards used to be as big as baseball for your pal Sully. In fact, there was a certain rhythm to the year that the Academy Awards used to be at the end of this at you know, the end of March, early April, in that general ballpark. You know, mid-March to early April would be the Oscars. And then baseball would start in April and then end in late October. And that usually was in November and December when a lot of the big Oscar contenders started to come out. So there was always kind of a rhythm that when one ended, the other began. And I'm just having a hard time getting into this year's Oscars. It just could A big part of it is... I don't get to go to the movies that much anymore. You know, when I was a single man and, you know, making money in comedy and, or in TV or wherever I was doing, you know, I used to go to the movies a lot. And, they were, and I used to see just about everything. And there were only five Best Picture nominees, so I could, you know, I could chalk those up in a week. And I usually had a decent idea of what they were going to be, so when, by the time they announced the nominations, I could concentrate on watching you know, best actor and actress. And by the time the excitement of watching the Oscars was over, I had big Oscar parties in my apartment in New York. And then it was like, okay, let's start baseball up. Well, now the Oscars are a month earlier. They pushed them a month earlier, and they've doubled the number of films you see. And so, you, you know, it's, I have less time to watch more movies. And, you know, I've seen La La Land, I've seen Arrival, I've seen Hell or High Water, 
You know, I've seen some of the nominees, but I'm still way behind, and there's no way I'm going to – I'm just chalking up. I ain't going to see Lion and, and Hidden Figures by the time the Oscars come around. You know, I'm probably not going to see – I don't know. Maybe you won't see the Mel Gibson War movie. I don't know. And there was a period in my life that would have been me scratching my eyeballs out. And it's not so much. And that kind of gets me worried. They're like, is, is this a part of me that is going away? Fading away like the, the, the imaginary friend in Inside Out? Or was I following the Oscars and watching all of it out of a habit because of keeping alive some part of my youth? I don't know. I don't know. I still get this excited about baseball. I cannot wait for the season to start. I think it's going to be a really fun season, and I and you know I, a bunch of teams I would love to see win are, are probably going to be big time contenders. But this Oscar season, like, who am I? Am I, who am I rooting for? You know what? What movie am I? Do I have my money on? It's kind of nervous as I get older, and you lose. You know, you lose track of the stuff that used to mean a lot to you. And I don't know, maybe maybe I just need to be jump head first into movies, or maybe I need to say, hey, there was a period of my life the Oscars meant a lot. There's a period of my life, you know, certain TV shows or certain music meant a lot, and not as much anymore. I don't know. Maybe, and maybe it's, the knowledge that it's so subjective or, you know, we're at a point where the best writers and actors want to go to television and, you know, I, I see more television shows. Or who knows, maybe by the time my kids move out of the house, I'll go back to watching every damn movie ever made. I don't know the answer. I did manage to catch up a little bit of my Oscar watching and the only Best Picture nominee that has any, you know, for the lack of a better word, any relevance for the Sully Baseball Daily podcast would be the adaptation of August Wilson's Fences that uh, Denzel Washington directed and starred in. And uh, I'm, I'm a big Denzel Washington fan. Uh, I, think he's a, I think he's a remarkable actor. Uh, and I also think that he belongs in a category. I know people like to compare him to Sidney Poitier because they're lazy. Uh, I like to think of Denzel Washington. He's in a category that I'm going to, it's going to, you know, on first sight, it's going to sound like a strange comparison, but it's it's apt when you think about it. I put him in a category with Meryl Streep, with Paul Newman, and with Burt Lancaster. And what I mean by that is all those actors I just mentioned acted in various parts of their life. They're, they were, you know, in their youth, you know, when they were, you know, young adults, when they were middle-aged, and then when they're older. And you see Denzel here, he's an older man with a big belly and gray hair and everything like that. And there are very few actors, I just rattled off the ones I could think of. Paul Newman, Burt Lancaster, Meryl Streep, those are the three that I can think of who stayed consistent in their career through that whole aging process. There are some other actors who have had, you know, 
been good younger actors and become wonderful older actors or good younger actresses and older actors. All this. They're examples, but there have always been like a little bit of a gap. You know, Sean Connery had a big gap in his career of like, oh, now what is he? You know, what's he doing now? Oh, now he's embraced being an older, you know. There's, there have been people who have become, have big comebacks and reinvent themselves. But those four that I mentioned never had a comeback because they always remained great. They just, they allowed to age in front of us. And they never, there was never a dip in their career like, you know, some actors and some movie stars are like, oh, geez, they're kind of phoning this in or something. And then they get, then they get their careers revitalized. See Travolta, comma, John. You know, Jack Nicholson has had valleys in his career that he is able to reinvent himself. Same with Robert Redford. But the four I just mentioned are actors who never had a dip and always remained at the peak. I mean, when you go from, from here to eternity, Elmer Gantry, uh, Judgment, Nuremberg, right through Atlantic City, local hero, and Field of Dreams with Burt Lancaster throughout that whole stretch, there's never a point, even in a blockbuster like Airport, there's never a point where you're like, oh man, Burt's phoning it in. You know, from you know, from HUD and the Hustler and and somebody up there likes me and Butch Cassidy, Fort Apache, the Bronx, right through Nobody's Fool and the verdict with uh Paul Newman, Meryl Streep's the same way, and Denzel is that way. From St. Elsewhere and Glory and Cry Freedom through Malcolm X and Training Day and, and uh, American Gangster and, and the Hurricane, right through fences. There is never a point in Denzel's career where you're like, uh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is not a good time for him. You know, I'm not going to break down his career. There's an amazing podcast hosted by W. Kamau Bell and Emmy winner Kevin Avery called Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period, where they break down his career piece by piece, and they do it much better than I could. But Fences is obviously a labor of love for Denzel Washington because it's based upon one of the classic American plays, uh, certainly of the 20th century. And it's a wonderful play. I saw a production of Fences on television. I think it was on PBS. I may be wrong. Uh, from the original cast with James Earl Jones back in, uh, I'm going to say, 87. I know it was in the 80s, and it was when your pal Sully was really thinking about being an actor. And it's a story It takes place. uh, August Wilson did a whole series of plays about the lives of African-American people in Pittsburgh over the decades. And Fences is probably the most famous play of of that bunch. And the the story revolves around... uh, character that Denzel Washington plays in the film, Troy Maxson. And it's called Fences for many reasons. There's, you know, he's, he's building a fence. He's a former Negro League player who talks about hitting over the fence. And metaphorically, there are fences that are built up between he and his son, between he and his wife, and eventually between he and the specter of death. Now, there have been some criticisms of this film. I went to go see it uh, two days ago in Palo Alto, and it was—I was actually thrilled. It was a—it was a matinee. 
uh, weekend matinee, or it was a President's Day matinee, and it was sold out. I mean, I got tickets for it, but it was sold out. It was, like, absolutely jam-packed. And I think that's great that a, a, a film which is, you know, a success, but it's not like Star Wars at the box office, has been out for several months and still is can have a night where there's a, or an afternoon where there's no seats available. Um, and, and the crowd was there and they were very, you know, receptive to the film. Uh, the biggest criticism that I'd give the movie, and I think it's a common criticism heard, is that it really feels like a film version of the play. It doesn't really, it's not really a cinematic experience. I mean, it seems like 90% of it takes place in the backyard or the kitchen of the house. And the few times where they leave the house and they go do something else, uh, it almost is jarring. You're almost like, you know what, if you're going to do the play, just stick in the house. Don't, don't go to this place or that place. You don't need to see that. Um, but that being said, and, and, and the performances are very theatrical as well. Denzel Washington and Viola Davis and a lot of the cast, Stephen Henderson, Russell Hornsby, uh, Michael T. Williams, Michael T. Williamson, sorry, he was the one who was, he played Bubba in Forrest Gump, if you don't know who he is. Uh, a lot of them were in the Broadway production of it. So then the acting feels, everything feels very theatrical to it. Uh, and, and there is a, a, some elements of kind of borderline heightened reality that are in the play, especially towards the end. I'm not going to spoil anything here. But, uh, but, it's, but you know, that's kind of nitpicking on mine. It's a fine film. Denzel Washington is wonderful. Viola Davis is guaranteed to win the Academy Award. Uh, and, and it's looking like, I mean, Denzel Washington will also probably win the Academy Award as well as an actor. And he was nominated also as a producer of the movie uh, because he, you know, he helped put the damn thing together. One of the things I love about a film like this is when an actor who you've seen in other things gets to shine. Like you go into this and you know, you know damn well that Denzel Washington is going to be great. And you know Viola Davis is going to be great because they're both two amazing actors. But the, the name that made that jumped out for me is Stephen Henderson. And Stephen Henderson is a that guy. You would see him, oh, it's that guy. I've seen him. He's been in 100 movies and TV shows. But what is wonderful is that he gets to shine in this film. And in fact, I walked away thinking more about Stephen Henderson than Denzel or Viola Davis. That's kind of like you if you watch a game and it's like you Mike Trout's playing it or, you know, in the lineup or you know, uh, Clayton Kershaw's pitching or whatever, you know, you expect them to do wonderful things. But like when Ben Zobrist becomes the World Series MVP, you know, that's when you sort of perk up. So, wow, Ben Zobrist. Or, or when, um, when the Phillies played the Giants in the 2010 NLCS, that was star-studded. You had Tim Lincecum, you had uh, Roy Halladay, you had Jimmy Rollins, you had Ryan Howard, you had Buster Posey. You had all these stars on both sides. And then it was Cody Ross who won the MVP of that series. That's kind of, that's kind of what Steven Henderson's performance was for me, was that he's in scenes with Viola Davis and Denzel Washington and holding his own. That's like Cody Ross hitting two home runs off of Roy Halladay in the league championship series. And I love that when an actor is like, here, 
And he, he played the part on Broadway, but I didn't see it on Broadway, and chances are you didn't either. So now you go to the movie theater and you see, hey, you know that actor you've seen in seven quadrillion films? Yeah. He's in scenes with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis, and he doesn't get sucked into the undertow. You know? He holds his own. He shows he deserves to be on that stage. And so uh, that's one of the things in this film I really was really was drawn to, that it was not just the two leads and everyone else trembling at the sight of them, but like everyone else brought their A game. It's based upon, you know, he is, uh, Troy Maxson's character, among anything else, is a former Negro League star. And he played in the era where he would have been too old for integration. And so he never got his chance in the major leagues, even though by all accounts of the characters, he had the talent to do it. I, one of the things I really, you know, as a baseball fan watching the film, you know, you can look at his character and see the frustration as he's a, a garbage man fighting for the right to be the person driving the truck as opposed to the person throwing, picking up the garbage cans and throwing them in the back or throwing the trash in the back. And knowing that he could have been a baseball star had he been born at a different time. And the lunacy of segregation in baseball, where he's talking about his talent and what he could have done, is one of the things, as a, just as a pure baseball fan, stuck out. And you got to wonder, when you hear these stories about the, you know, the great Negro Leaguers, you know, we've tracked down, we can keep track on, like, who the Hall of Famers were. You know, the best of the best, whether it was Cool Papa Bell or Ray Dandridge or Turkey Stearns or, or um, you know, Buck Leonard or, you know, Bajum Wilson and obviously Josh Gibson, Satchel Page. You know, we've kept track of them over the years and, and, and they're relatively obscure compared to some other figures in baseball. But think of the people who were good players but not great. I mentioned Cody Ross, played for the Giants and the Marlins and several teams, had a nice career. Not a superstar, had a nice career. You know, think of the players who had nice careers and then faded off. Think about the players who shone for two or three years in the majors and then kind of faded away. You know, think about how many of them in the Negro Leagues where the superstars are relatively obscure, where the Hall of Famers aren't on the tips of people's tongues. Imagine what a journeyman, imagine what someone who was a good, solid player but not a star, what would have happened to them? And you look at the, the fate of Troy Maxson, and that's, you know, that's probably part of it. One of the, and, you know, you can't help but think, you know, as he plays in, you know, he was in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh was the home of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, which was one of the great Negro League teams and great Negro League franchises of all time and one of the most profitable and the ones the most successful ones, one where they had their own ballpark. And the thing that I just... Uh, affected me in, in a really wonderful way was that in his eyes, in Troy Maxson's eyes, the character 
played by Denzel Washington in the film, he was disparaging the players who played in the white players who would have taken his job. He kept bringing up uh, Selkirk, George Selkirk, who played for the Yankees in the 30s and 40s and essentially took Babe Ruth's place. When Babe Ruth's career ended with the Yankees, he started playing right field. And he started talking about how mediocre George Selkirk was. And the subtext was, this is who they got to replace Babe Ruth. And there were so many black players who could have done an amazing job. But Selkirk got the job for no other reason than his skin color. And, and But the thing that I found just sort of, I don't know, made me smile in a strange way was he belittled, his character belittled Jackie Robinson, belittled Henry Aaron, belittled Roberto Clemente and Sandy Koufax because, A, he felt that he would have been better than them. And so he never got the chance, so he had to belittle their talents. But also because in his mind, in his perspective, what he saw, what he saw as a player and what we interacted with as a player was the best. And the notion of these new younger people being that good is abhorrent to him. And of course that plays off of the, uh, you know, about, about his relationship with his son, Corey, who wants to be a football player. It plays off of that thematically in the, in the, in the film and in the, in the original stage play. But what I'm saying is, is there's a notion of that that we see to this day. You listen to a baby boomer talk about players today. If I said, do you know what? I think Mike Trout and uh, Clayton Kershaw are as good as any hitter or pitcher who's ever lived. You'll say, stop it. Compared to Sandy Koufax, compared to Hank Aaron, compared to Roberto Clemente, and the idea that you're always thinking that the people that you interacted with, the people that you saw play, were the best. And don't talk to me about these new people because what that means is if these new people are as good as what you saw or what you interacted with or what you rooted for, then in a weird way it makes, and this is totally illogical, but it makes the people whom you followed, it cheapens them in a way. They weren't the best ever. They weren't super special. They just happened to be the players who were great while you were the ones watching it. And it says something about generations. And it says something about how we perceive generations today and generations of the past, and a reluctance to accept what the new generation has to say or even offer. And that's one of the genius elements of August Wilson, is that he was writing plays about the black experience, black experience in Pittsburgh over many decades. But he did so in a way where it can be relatable even if that wasn't your experience. And that there are elements that are universal. Someone said, I, I saw an interview with Denzel Washington where he said that after a, it was either after a production of the play or a screening of the film, I can't remember, 
where someone in a Q&A afterwards said, I didn't know August Wilson was Polish. And Denzel Washington was confused by the statement, and he said, well, I grew up in a Polish home, and I could relate to everything that happened in this film. And so I think the smartest thing Denzel Washington did was to not get in the way of the words of August Wilson. So perhaps him making it, you know, keeping it in the confines of the house and of the kitchen was a smart move because he didn't fight what the play was, which is beautiful words, beautiful characters, wonderful actors that were put together. And let's give a giant salute to the cast, just not just Denzel and Viola, who will probably walk away with statues this weekend, but to Stephen Henderson and to Russell Hornsby and the rest of the wonderful cast who held their own. So I'm not going to be able to see everything at the Oscars, but do you know what? Baseball fans, check out Fences. Go watch it and also go subscribe to Denzel Washington as the greatest podcast. Jesus, they'll love that. Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period, which is a wonderful podcast and very funny. And uh, they, they talk about Denzel and his career, and it also ties into other social events and everything like that. And it's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. So I'm giving them, they've given me a, uh, a shout out, and so I'm returning the favor. So enjoy the Oscars, go see Fences, and yeah. Subscribe to Sully Baseball Daily Podcast. Go to sullybaseball.com. Like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast for the 23rd day of February 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.